I'm Sebastian Bruder, and I'm a research scientist at DeepMind based in London. I ask you to come on to speak about transfer learning, which you've written and researched quite a bit. For those who don't know, could you give us a high-level definition of what transfer learning is? Transfer learning has quite a long history, and in the past, people have used uh, the term transfer learning to uh, refer to different things. In general, when people talk about transfer learning, what they mean is that in contrast to um, kind of the classic uh, machine learning, where you have some training data, where you can train your model on, and then you typically try to evaluate it on the data that comes from the same task and distribution. Transfer learning, you really try to leverage data or um, some sort of information knowledge that comes from different tasks or different domains. So typically, you have some pre-training tasks or some related data sources that you want to leverage to do better on the task you actually care about by transferring whatever information that is relevant for your downstream task. And I know many people begin their learnings of machine learning uh, training on data sets like Iris or the Titanic. And their reference point is this uh, value delivery through custom feature engineering. And from that point of view, transfer learning seems, you know, kind of science fiction. Can you speak a little bit to the domains and situations where it's viable? Um, yeah, sure, sure. So um, I think most of kind of the recent successes we've seen transfer learning initially came in um, computer vision. Transfer learning really is mostly useful if the task or the data set you want to apply your models to um, if you don't have um, a lot of training data for those. So use pre-trained information to improve the performance on yeah, models that don't do that well in the first place. In computer vision initially, we've seen a lot of successes where people have used um, models that were trained before on a very large data set known as ImageNet, where um, you have a thousand labels of different uh, objects um, and about a million training examples. And the methods that have been trained on this data set have been shown to really capture generally useful features that are useful for recognizing different categories of objects or for performing different forms of visual tasks. Uh, applying these, these pre-trained models to other vision tasks where you don't have a lot of data has um, initially led to some big successes. And most recently, um, in natural language processing, we've kind of seen a similar principle where we've had a la um, task where we have a lot of data in the form of language modeling, so predicting the next word in a sequence, um, which is a task where, because you don't actually need uh, annotation for that, you can use a lot of very large corpora to train your models on. And we've seen that also these models capture generally useful features that have been found useful for a wide variety of language uh, tasks. You've used the terminology in other places that I really appreciate that you have the source data set and the target data set. So in the example you began with, I guess ImageNet would be the source and it's very large corpora. And then uh, maybe if I worked for a furniture company, I wanted to recognize our brand of chairs that aren't in ImageNet, that'd be our target are there any um, best practices or maybe anything more rigorous that would help a person determine whether or not their target is reasonable for the source data set? Yeah, so, so you stressed really an important aspect here, which is the um, similarity between your um, source and your target task. The related area in transfer learning is, um, or kind of very classic area as well, is domain adaptation, where the task stays the same, but you try to um, adapt between a different source domain to a different target domain. Yeah? Say if you want to recognize the, the sentiment of your text, you could transfer from different categories of reviews, for instance. 
people have really shown that if the source and the target data are very similar, you get better performance out of your transfer model. And in that case, because you have the same labels, you can really look at the particular aspects or the particular features of your data to kind of derive some similarity me uh, metric on the data level. Now in the setting where you actually try to adapt between different tasks, it's not really as clear cut really to, um, to say in what way these tasks are actually similar. So most of the studies I'm aware of so far have really tried to make some empirical statements by looking at a large number of pairings of different tasks and looking at how different models trained on different tasks, transferred to different downstream tasks, and then essentially identify different tasks, for instance, in computer vision, that would be um, generally really useful to pre-train on, and other tasks which are maybe more specialized. The high-level idea of transfer learning, as you've described, it's very intuitive. I think even people outside of ML can say, okay, I kind of get what you're doing at a high level. And speaking specifically, I guess, to deep learning and, and neural networks where it seems to be the most prevalent, it's intuitive how to do it. But when you sit down to actually get your hands dirty, there seem to be a lot of questions like, do I freeze layers and how many and what are my learning rates? And uh, there's a lot of free parameters there. What are some of the sorts of considerations a practitioner would have when looking to execute on transfer learning? You typically start out with your pre-trained model parameters, and you know you want to leverage the, the information that is contained in these parameters in some way for your downstream task. One dimension at which you can make decisions on is essentially deciding whether you want to update all of these parameters or whether you want to keep them frozen, so basically not touch them at all and just only add a few um, task-specific parameters. If you want to adapt your model to a lot of different tasks, you might prefer to keep those parameters frozen so that you don't have to store separate copies of each of the models. However, in practice, in most parts, the preferred way is actually to update most of the parameters, what is called fine-tuning. Typically, even though you don't want to change your pre-trained parameters too much in order not to forget what you've previously learned, you still are typically better off to make some small task-specific changes to your model parameters. I pulled a quote from you from last year saying, NLP has so far not had an ImageNet moment. And uh, we're working in NLP time, which works pretty quickly in the recent years. Do you still feel that way? Or do we have an exciting announcement in the, on the horizon somewhere? <laughs> Um, I think for most people that work in natural language processing, um, that either like do research or are practitioners using the models, I think it's become apparent to most people that we've, if you want to call it that way, that we've had an image net moment over basically the last uh, year, essentially. If you look at any recent or classic benchmark task in natural language processing, each of the um, state-of-the-art methods, in most cases, really will use some sort of pre-trained model, or where they will either use directly fine-tuning that model to do better with some additional uh, task-specific changes to do better on the downstream task, or they would use features of that pre-trained model on the downstream task. And also, we've seen kind of over the last month, really, um, or over the last year, really a plethora or a sequence of ever more powerful, ever bigger pre-trained models in NLP, with the last one released only about a week ago. Yeah, you're referring to the new Google XL something or whatever? I, I don't have the name in my head yet. Yeah, the XLNet is probably the last in this generation of kind of bigger pre-trained language models. Oh, interesting. What makes you say it's the last one? 
Uh, well, I mean, the most, not like oh, the most last current. one. As, as a, exactly. As of now. <laughs> okay, yeah. We've covered Elmo on the show, and I haven't yet made time for Bert, and then now suddenly there's another. So I'm feeling the pressure to catch up, I guess. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's really been very exciting uh, at what pace and the improvements that these recent models have, um, have brought. Absolutely. What's the relationship between transfer learning and topics like active learning or maybe semi-supervised learning? I personally think of transfer learning as any way where you would try, you'd like to use pre-trained or information that comes from some related tasks, but not the tasks that you actually care about. And typically, I think the best or the most kind of default way at the moment seems to be that you try to construct some sort of auxiliary or um, self-supervised objective in order to train your models to learn this information you care about. And in contrast to that, you can think of active learning as typically using more domain information or human expertise in order to steer the model or learn better from few labels or labels that you actually have for the task that you care about. I think of active learning as essentially uh, leveraging the labels of your actual task uh, that you care about more uh, efficiently. And semi-supervised learning, in, in contrast, you want to leverage unlabeled data that still comes from the task you actually care about. So I think all of these approaches are really orthogonal. And there's been some interesting work on, for instance, combining pre-trained information as well as semi-supervised information that you can get from these models. Who has the harder problem, image recognition people or NLP and finding, you know, making sure they have a robust foundation to start with? <laughs> Um, well, I would personally think that um, yeah, the la- language is more challenging in that yeah, you will not only deal with English, but you have yeah a lot of different languages which have different characteristics where you might be able to share some information, but where you still need to learn uh, a lot more information in the language itself. Often with language, there's a lot of context that underlies it. You need a lot of world information or just cultural, societal context as well that you have to learn from data as well. In computer vision, in in contrast, uh, I think a lot of the more object recognition or semantic segmentation-related tasks are really more low-level in terms of recognized objects or particular parts of the images. I think computer vision gets more challenging as well as you try to incorporate more common sense or more reasoning as well in terms of uh, identifying causality or looking at videos, for instance, or how different images relate to each other. So I think you can um, you can make computer vision as well more challenging as you move more from the actual uh, perception towards more reasoning tasks. But I think overall, we can really see with language, I think that so far, it seems that only humans have really acquired the ability or the capacity to process language, whereas many animals uh, exhibit different forms of computer vision or visual processing. Ah, that's a great point. Yeah. One of the areas that excites me most when I think about transfer learning is um, how they might assist with under-resourced languages, where the techniques or the corpora is not widely available. I'm curious what sort of methods exist for people who are enthusiastic about studying under-resourced languages. That's a great point, and I uh, and I think applying the current methods that we have that work very well for student tasks in English, really to um, kind of the rest of the six thousand uh, languages in the world is, I think, one of the most exciting areas and one of the most impactful areas in NLP. There's been a long history of cross-lingual transfer, cross-lingual adaptation in NLP, where you try to train models on 
multiple languages where you try to transfer information from one source task or one source language to another language forming that same task. So a lot of people have been thinking about and working on areas related to that. As a result, there's lots of data sets as well, maybe most notably the Universal Dependencies Benchmark, which have linguistic annotations in many different languages as well. I think most recently with these pre-trained language models, um, one of the most exciting aspects, I think, is by leveraging language modeling, we essentially only need unlabeled data in those languages. Just by leveraging either Wikipedia or other corpora, news corpora we have available in those languages, we can already we already have the ability to get that pre-trained information, and we can then apply that to target us while hopefully relying on fewer labels to actually perform very well. So I think that's probably, in my in my opinion, the most um, important aspect of using these pre-trained models for doing well in other languages. In some cases, we might actually be able to do well even without or with only very few examples in those um, target languages by training very large cross-lingual models. So people have shown that if you jointly train on unlabeled corpora of many languages at the same time, you can have a cross-lingual model that can, if then trained on one of those languages on a particular task, can do that task reasonably well in other languages as well. There's a couple of problems with that. For instance, if uh, you only had um, comparatively small train data in some of those languages, the model won't really generalize that well to those under-resourced languages. So I think for the like truly low-resource languages, there's still a lot of challenges ahead. But I think this overall methodology is quite promising overall. When it comes to cross-lingual learning, it makes sense to me that uh, like romance languages would be you'd have a lot of success there because they have common roots. Uh, but then there are languages, you know, maybe Korean, which uh, you have a lot more challenges. What are what seem to be the winning strategies for approaches to cross-lingual learning? Do we are we moving towards translating to some universal embedding space, or can we treat it like a multitask learning problem? What seems to be the best state-of-the-art approach? One of the most maybe um, conceptually simple and still relatively easy to implement um, approaches is that you rely on cross-lingual word representations. Essentially, you try to map all the words in the different languages into the same um, embedding space. When you now train your model, you would use embeddings in this joint embedding space. Training your model on these joint features on one language, you would kind of automatically get a model that transfers somewhat reasonably to another language as well. Doing this sort of mapping, obviously, is easier if languages are related. So, so far, most of the benchmarks for performing this mapping have been using English as one of the languages or the language that the different other embedding spaces get mapped to, which is obviously easier to map from Romance languages to English compared to mapping from languages that are agglutinative, for instance, like Turkish or Finnish or Estonian to English, who are more distant. Also recently, we're seeing more work on uh, that takes that into consideration and tries to account and scale these methods to more distant language pairs as well. It's clear that when you uh, want to apply transfer learning, you need some amount of your own data to start with and uh, hopefully a powerful source data set that's similar. How few examples is too few? What do I need as a baseline to get going in my project? So one aspect really is the difficulty of your target task. So we've seen very or reasonably good results with as little as um, 100 instances um, using some of these pre-trained models for binary or five-class classification. So I think off the top of my head, if you have, um, you would probably need to get some 
which is probably not production ready, but some okay performance, maybe using as little as 50 examples per label. And then if you have probably from the order of 200 examples per label, you might start to get somewhat good performance with these sorts of models. But then again, as you move to tasks which are more complex, um, like question answering, or re which requires some sort of reasoning, yeah, you need to increase the number of examples by quite a lot. However, maybe an interesting side note on that is people have shown that if your target task, if you can express it in somewhat a similar way to the pre-training tasks, um, so because language modeling is most commonly used if you can express your target task as a form of like a conditional language modeling, essentially, that you try to prompt your model with some input or some string, you might be able to do fewer samples, or you could even do um, some zero-shot inference with the model. One interesting example was of that was OpenAI using the string TLDR to trigger their method to produce a summarization of the input. Oh, that's very clever. I like that. In a way, that's very inspiring that there were tasks that maybe 10 years ago, people would have said, oh, there's not enough data here for us to have a training set. Transfer learning can unlock a lot of people who have small corpora, um, as long as the task is reasonable and the difference is not too great. With that in mind, I know you've open sourced a great deal of the code you've developed while exploring and researching these topics. Could you speak a little bit about what you've made available and uh, where people might get started? So throughout my PhD, I've worked on a number of different projects, some particularly early on relating more to domain adaptation, which I alluded to before. So often the projects might, depending what people are interested in, those might maybe refer to some um, some disparate areas. But yeah, basically all of the code is available on my publications page. And then what people, um, uh, or I think most of the people recently found uh, very helpful um, was as part of a collaboration with FastAI um, that I worked on before joining DeepMind. We developed a yeah another approach for pre-training language model which we also open source and which is very easily accessible as part of the FastAI library. It can actually be run with just a few lines of code. Does that require me to stand up a big cluster and spend a whole bunch of money on some cloud service? Or what's, uh, what's my compute look like in a case like that? Um, yeah, the, the cool thing really about um, a lot of these transfer learning approaches is that even though it's very expensive and really um, costly, unfortunately, still to pre-train um, a lot of these methods. So you still, if you want to pre-train a model that is similar to BERT or some of these um, more recent approaches, you still need a large cluster, unfortunately. Um, however, as all of these, um, all of the yeah, latest pre-trained models are available, actually applying them to your task, actually fine-tuning them on your data is really comparatively cheap. So in some cases, you can use collaborative notebooks from Google, which often come with a GPU or sometimes even a TPU, to fine-tune these models in really a number of minutes if you only have a few thousands of examples of your data. Um, and even on larger tasks like the Stanford Question Answering Dataset, where you have 100,000 examples, you can fine-tune it in a couple of hours. So it's really on a single GPU. So it's really comparatively cheap, actually, um, to apply these models to your downstream tasks. Uh, I'd like to maybe move into a few sort of uh, theoretical or abstract questions as we wind up. Um, the first being that I think, you know, within my lifetime, we've seen some very profound achievements in NLP, especially recently. Translation is getting, you know, quite advanced compared to the laughable translations we used to get many years ago. And uh, I think we're at the point where in certain tasks, the machinery is reaching human level or even better level of accuracy. So one could easily jump on this bandwagon and say, hey, NLP is almost solved. Where do you feel about it, practically speaking? 
I really agree that it's been very exhilarating, really exciting to see um, the progress the community has made over the last years in terms of um, not only um, getting close to human performance on some of these recent benchmarks, but also really um, even on classic benchmarks that have been around for more than 10 years on really showing very large improvements on these very classic tasks. No matter where you look at, there's been quite significant improvements recently using these newly developed methods. But then again, that just means that the task we've so far been looking at, for instance, most of the question answering tasks are not yet close to what we actually would expect if we say that a model does human level question answering. Because most of the tasks to make them accessible and to be able to apply your methods to those tasks have simplified the problems in some ways. For instance, many of the question answering tasks treat the task of actually answering the question, generating the answer based on the question, as simply pointing to the number of words in the paragraph, which is admittedly not what we would expect from a model that should perform question answering. Mm -hmm. Current methods, even though they have really achieved better performance on these tasks, they still mostly as uh, are very good at um, just picking up on features and cues that are in the data and don't really exhibit yet very deep or human-like natural language understanding, actually. So I think overall still will require a lot more work, more methodological advances and more data sets to really get closer to human-level natural language understanding. And maybe one interesting trend in that direction is that we've seen that in order to develop better models, we obviously need more challenging data sets. However, as current methods are becoming more performant, it's actually not that easy anymore, maybe, to come up with data sets that are really in this Goldilocks zone of being challenging enough while not being easily or trivial solvable by current methods. Successful recent datasets have been putting those models in the loop when generating the data in order to come up with examples that are hard for the current models to, to solve. And I think overall, um, this paradigm of improving the models and improving our data sets kind of in a, in a cyclical loop is something that will probably continue to carry the community forward. Switching, this will seem like a non sequitur at first, but something that always sticks in my mind is the perihelion of Mercury and how scientists were aware it didn't fit Newtonian mechanics. And that was one of the hints to keep looking at that that eventually led Einstein to relativity. Do you know of any of these hard problems to solve that you think NLP practitioners should focus on that might reveal the next methodological breakthrough? So I think there's a lot of hard problems that already a lot of people in the community are actually um, thinking about. One area that has recently been getting more attention is the domain of common sense reasoning. So because we know that our models are like right now very good at um, kind of extracting some information from large unlabeled corpora, but a lot of that is actually part of how we understand language and that contributes to actually us being able to infer what a question means or how we should respond in a given situation often isn't really written down or expressed specifically in text. So often a lot of things that we know to be true are simply rarely or never said or are really only infrequently represented. So we would never really say clear things about common sense facts like we need oxygen to survive or the grass is green, or things like that, or really facts about entities, about uh, someone being the, the son of, of someone else, for instance, that we would incorporate or require a model to know for answering certain queries, but that we still, we don't really have an easy way to get at just doing this sort of language modeling. So I think really trying to incorporate these other forms of knowledge that we know our current methods are bad at modeling or bad at getting at at the moment is a very interesting domain moving forward. 
with regard to that, I also think language modeling itself, even though it's been very um, successful so far, people have shown that for language models, what is actually most relevant and what the model mostly picks up on is short-term contextual information. So the things that people uh, or that was said just in the preceding or the couple of preceding sentences or paragraphs is what really gives you kind of the majority of the performance on language modeling tasks and what really the model mostly picks up on, on topical and kind of co-occurrence information. Um, and it's really only a weak signal for supervising more of the kind of semantic or um, encouraging the models to capture more longer range dependencies for keeping track of how things relate, tracking different entities in a book, or keeping track of overall themes, of overall directions, of maybe the discourse structure as well. We'll need objectives that particularly account for those. Two of the things you'd mentioned as future directions are exploring you know, other architectures and methodologies, and then I guess somewhat independently having more data sets or more challenging data sets. And certainly we need both. I'm curious, do you have a sense of where or which path might yield uh, more fruit for us, at least uh, low-hanging fruit or things on the near term? In terms of near term advances, we won't have seen the last of just scaling up these um, large pre-trained language models. Just by making these models bigger and training them on more data, um, we'll still be able to get more performance. So we can still expect to see um, at least a couple of probably then uh, by then canonical um, larger models uh, that we can use. In terms of methodological advances, I think in the near term, at least I hope to see more work on actually making these models smaller. That, that maybe runs contrary to what I just said, that we'll probably will want to enlarge these models to actually get most of the benefit. But in then applying them to downstream tasks, we often don't want to deal with a gargantuan behemoth of mm -hmm. a language model. But we'd actually like to have something that is more uh, that is leaner and can be more efficiently used in practice. So I think we'll see more more efforts in terms of um, compressing these models, reducing their size, pruning them, or identifying maybe parts um, subparts of the parameter space um, that are particularly useful for a certain task. And then I hope really, I mean, it's been very exciting to me that yeah, just over the last year there's been a lot of data sets for a wide range of um, natural language processing tasks being developed, many focusing on different instances of question answering or of common sense reasoning. And I think it's re really important that we keep on developing these new data sets to challenge and consistently evaluate our methods on as well. Um, and I think developing new data sets is a really good way of pinpointing or stress testing uh, the models and really trying to find and identify the shortcomings of them. Because only then we will know if we have a data set that um, addresses or um, evaluates a particular aspect of the model, only then will we really know if it has learned that kind of effectively or if we, if we will need to augment it in some way to do better on the task. I, as a human being, feel like, and maybe I'm being arrogant here, but that I have some sense of what would transfer well. Like if someone has, I don't know, a chat bot that helps dentists set appointments, that that might, that Q&A system might be a great one as the source data set to help uh, an attorney make a chat bot that sets appointments, something along those lines. Um, is there anything more rigorous that exists, or do you imagine more rigorous techniques will emerge? Yeah, so I'm not, I'm not really aware of anything more rigorous or more principled in, in that direction. Um, so I really expect that we'll see, or I, I would hope that we would see more work that tries to address exactly that, that we'll have yeah, both kind of a more principled understanding of, of these tasks. 
if we look back at kind of pre-neural networks, um, feature engineering was also driven by uh, yeah, a lot of common sense, a lot of domain expertise. And then with neural networks, we've essentially automated feature engineering. However, in the early days of neural networks, we've still had to manually, or people are still manually specifying the architecture. But also recently, we've seen approaches that try to learn the architecture as well. Maybe not the immediate next step, but one of the next steps in that direction will really be that rather than pre-specifying or trying to use our domain expertise to specify the pre-training task we want to use or specify what parts of the input uh, the model should predict to um, gather or to capture certain information, we'll also hopefully be able to generate different pre-training tasks and then evaluate them and choose kind of the ones that will be uh, most helpful for our downstream tasks. And that's also something that I think a lot of people... Um, working on meta learning are thinking about where often you need kind of the distribution of tasks to train your models on in order to have this meta learner which can very easily be adapted to, to new tasks um, and I think there also the key challenge really is to have uh, access to this distribution of tasks to train the model on. So I think more line, more work in the line of automatically generating tasks, either for pre-training or meta-learning, will really be very useful in the long term. Well, very exciting stuff. I definitely want to keep an eye on. Sebastian, I want to thank you so much for taking the time to chat with me. Uh, to wind up, where can listeners follow you online? So you can find me on Twitter at sep underscore ruder. Or you can find me on my uh, on my blog as well, which is ruder.io. Excellent. We'll have links to both of those in the show notes.